This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over Tel Aviv. It is just after 10 p.m. here, and it's been 23 days since the horrific terrorist attacks that by Hamas that caught this country and, frankly, much of the world by surprise. Uh, we start today by this declaration from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, quote, This is a time for war, Netanyahu said during an address just a few hours ago. Despite the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the thousands of casualties, including an untold number of civilians and children, Netanyahu dismissed calls by some countries for a ceasefire, although the United States is not among them, uh, um, saying Israel uh, simply cannot stop its mission to target and destroy Hamas, the government that sent invaders into Israel to cruelly slaughter some 1,400 Israelis. Since the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Tonight, Israel's military is moving further into Gaza, increasing its attacks on what the IDF says are Hamas targets. Israel claims it has killed dozens of terrorists over the last day, but the IDF also uh, were able to rescue one of its own soldiers, they say. The IDF says Private Ori Megadish was released earlier today during military operations in Gaza after being kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. This photo was released by the Israeli government after Private Megadish was medically cleared and reunited with her family. Today, Hamas released a short video of three other women who are believed uh, to be hostages. One of the women uh, pleaded with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu to free them. CNN is not going to show the Hamas video, uh, but the Prime Minister's office did confirm the identities of the three women as Elena Trupanov and Danielle Aloni and Ramon Kirscht. Um, we learned a heartbreaking update earlier today about another victim of Hamas that we told you about. The Israeli government says Shani Luke, uh, a German-Israeli woman who was kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th from the Nova Music Festival. Shani has been confirmed killed. Shani was at the Nova Music Festival in southern Israel, where young people from around the world had gathered uh, to celebrate music and peace when Hamas attacked. Uh, her body was seen on video, Hamas video, after the attack. Uh, she was seemingly unconscious in the back of a Hamas truck uh, being driven into Gaza. We're going to show you the video at her family's request, and we want to warn you, the video is graphic. Her mother specifically gave CNN permission to air the video. She wants to show the world uh, the brutality uh, of Hamas. We are, we are blurring the image of her seemingly unconscious naked body. A source familiar with the identification of Shani's remains told me um, that the discovery of a fragment of a bone from the base of a skull, specifically the Petrus bone, was recently located and it was a DNA match for Shani's family. That fact 
combined with the horrific video we just showed you and the circumstances of Shani being kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th, led a team of experts uh, to conclude that Shani had been killed by Hamas. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is in Ashkelon, Israel for us right now, just north of Gaza. Jeremy, let's start with the IDF soldier um, rescued today. What do we know about how all this went down? Well, Jake, Admiral Hagari, the IDF spokesman, is saying only that this was a ground operation that resulted in the release of uh, Private uh, Ori Megidish. Uh, this operation was carried out overnight by Israeli forces inside uh, the Gaza Strip. But beyond that, we really aren't getting many details about this. And that may be uh, for operational security reasons. It may be because the IDF wants to continue carrying out similar operations to free additional hostages. This is the first time uh, that the IDF has confirmed that an operation carried out by its ground forces resulted in the release of one of these hostages. Previously, we've seen four other hostages released, and it has all been as the result of some kind of negotiations and what Hamas has described as a humanitarian decision to uh, release those hostages. This female soldier was posted at Nahal Oz near the Gaza border when she was kidnapped on October 7th. She is now with her family. We saw images released uh, by the IDF of her with her family, and she appears to be in good condition. Jake? Jeremy, tell us about what you saw uh, today closer to the Gaza border. Well, listen, the IDF is continuing to expand its ground operations. This has been made clear by the IDF that rather than this kind of overwhelming force of uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers invading the Gaza Strip at once, at least for now, what is happening is what they're describing as this expanded ground operation. Uh, and they are continuing to add soldiers to that effort, continuing to grow that the size of that operation. Today, as we were posted along the Gaza border, what we could hear was less aerial bombardment than we've heard in the last several days, but we did hear a lot of artillery being fired at the Gaza Strip uh, and also a lot of machine gun fire throughout the day, indicating that there is active fighting that is still going on between Israeli forces and Hamas militants. Uh, our photojournalist, Matthias Som, was also able to get images of some of the destruction in Beit Hanun, which is the e northeasternmost city in the Gaza Strip, where we know that Israeli forces have rolled in with tanks. You can see some of the buildings there, really just shells of themselves, only the foundation still remaining. Uh, but these operations are, are still continuing, Jake. The IDF says that it has carried out strikes on more than 600 targets over the last several days, and they are vowing to continue to expand this. As we heard the Israeli prime minister today say, he said that there is a time for peace and there is a time for war. Right now, he said it is a time for war. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond in Ashkelon, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's Jim Shudo. He's in northern Israel. Uh, Jim, what, what's the latest on Israel's offensive in Gaza, especially given Netanyahu's comments today uh, that Israel will simply not agree to any sort of ceasefire? Well, the headline, Jake, from his comments, and he did not leave any uncertainty about this, is that Israel is going to continue pushing forward. We are limited with our vision into Gaza by what we can see from the outside, from, for instance, Jeremy's standpoint and what the IDF shares. What the IDF has shared is simply that there is armor on the ground, armored units, tanks, armored personnel carriers, infantry, engineering units presumably used to breach some of those Hamas defenses, tunnels, IEDs, etc., that they have killed dozens of terrorists, and they've made some forward progress. It appears at this point at least several miles into Gaza, and it appears approaching from more than one direction, from the north, 
but also from the east, uh, moving towards Gaza City, where one can expect that they will face greater resistance. This is the area, uh, a more urban area, and this is an area where it's expected Israeli forces will face the most severe resistance and and the kind of resistance that U.S. uh, advisors, military advisors, had been warning Israeli military commanders about based on the U.S. military's own experience in similar battles in in places such as as Iraq, in Fallujah, and Mosul. Uh, That's the most vision we have inside Gaza right now. All right, Jim Shudo, thanks so much. Egypt says at least 75 aid trucks are waiting on its side of the Rafah border to cross into Gaza as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza gets worse by the hour. There are more than two million civilians inside Gaza. More than half are children. And as CNN Salma Abdelaziz reports, they are paying a tragic price for the actions of their government, Hamas. A warning, some of the images you're about to see are graphic. This is what the so-called second stage of war looks like. Panic and suffocation inside northern Gaza's Al-Quds Hospital. Terrified families and patients with nowhere to run. Airstrikes nearby after the IDF told people here to flee south. We have over 400 patients who are inside the hospital. Many of them are in the intensive care unit. Evacuating them means killing them. The evacuation order called impossible by the World Health Organization in the UN. Both stressed hospitals and civilians must be protected, including some 12,000 displaced people sheltering inside Al-Quds Hospital. Tell us we are safe and we will leave the hospital, he says. There is no safe place, not in the south, not in the whole of Gaza. Near constant airstrikes now pound the enclave, while Israeli troops expand their ground operations. The IDF insists it is eradicating Hamas. But on the ground, in this densely populated territory, utter devastation is the consequence. There are two million people, half of them children, trapped here under bombardment and under siege. This is revenge, a cowardly racist campaign, he says. We in this area, we are one family, we are kind people. Instead of waking up to the sound of the call to prayer, we woke up to an airstrike. The anguish and horror inside Gaza sparking mass demonstrations from New York City to London to Rome and calls for a ceasefire are growing louder. UN members overwhelmingly voted for an immediate and sustained truce last week. But even as Palestinian families bury their youngest, more than 3,000 children killed in three weeks, Save the Children said, citing Gaza's Hamas-controlled health authorities, amplifying the global outcry. Prime Minister Netanyahu vows this is only the beginning. Sam Abdulaziz, CNN, London. And our thanks to Salma Abdelaziz for that report. As this horror plays out, the U.S. estimates five to 600 Americans remain trapped in Gaza, many near the southern Rafah crossing near Egypt. You know at home, if you've been watching the lead, that we have been following two families in particular. I asked White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, what is going on? Why can't these Americans get out of Gaza? 
The Egyptians are prepared to allow American citizens and foreign nationals to come through the Rafah gate into Egypt. The Israelis have no issue with that. Hamas has been preventing their departure and making a series of demands. I can't go through those demands in public, but that is the subject of the discussions and the negotiations that are ongoing. We are trying to work through those. One of the Americans near the Rafah crossing, as you may know, is Abud Okal. He, along with his wife and their one-year-old son, are from Massachusetts. They were in Gaza visiting family when this all started. Despite the spotty communication, uh, he has been sending our team voice memos updating his situation. Here's what he sent our team last night. We are almost out of drinking water today. I think we have enough just to last us through the night, and then uh, tomorrow would be basically out. Uh, we hit four different bakeries um, to buy bread and, and any type of bread, actually. Uh, and it was a total mayhem, just like we expected, and actually quite heartbreaking to see the amount of people. Um, people uh, told us that they stood in line starting at one o'clock in the morning uh, the night before. Um, and that's all to be able to get one portion um, of bread, which is about 25 to 30 pieces of pita bread an average size pita bread. Uh, we, we stood in line for six hours uh, to get that amount, uh, which basically would be good enough for uh, a day or two at most, uh, enough for everyone in the house. I think Gaza has reached a point where um, it does not matter where you're from or how much money you have or who you know. Um, Everyone is in the same boat in terms of the uh, dire daily struggle to survive. And Abood sent us another voice memo today. His situation gets more heartbreaking every time we get an update, yet he keeps going, simply trying to keep his family alive. Listen. We've run out of drinking water yesterday as a desalination station that's nearby that we've been relying on has run out of uh, fuel to run the generators so what we did is uh, we we roamed the main roads and streets here in Rafa city where we're staying to look for basically what's become the norm now which is uh, trucks or uh, horse carts that are loaded with big tanks there's been an increase in in artillery shelling that's been the most noticeable update um, near the eastern side of the city where we're staying and also um, every once in a while we would hear heavy caliber um, gunfire that we believe is uh, fired from tanks and our biggest fear now is that the ground invasion is, is imminent. We've been in touch with the State Department um, since day one, few hours into the war and our frustration continues and, and builds up every day that uh, we're still stranded here and, and risk our lives. Still staying in the same house with my wife Wafa, my son Yusuf, um, my sister Hani and, and her three kids, all are Americans and um, along with 40 other people, in total 10 Americans in the same house um, and managing to stay safe so far. Um, and trying to secure resources for our day-to-day. -day. We're going to keep bringing you 
uh, Abud Okol's updates and his sister Hanin's updates as long as he sends them. And, and please know, Hanin is from New Jersey. You might remember her from a couple weeks ago. We are doing everything we can. We're calling every person possible. We are trying to get the Okol's family out of Gaza. And we are, President Biden, get the Americans out of Gaza. Do everything you can to get the Americans out of Gaza. Knowing these Americans are stuck in Gaza, could the U.S. be more forceful in its pressure to get them out? An influential voice in this space will join us next. Welcome back to The Lead, live from Israel. Just moments ago, uh, we saw the Iron Dome defense uh, system here in Israel intercepting rockets fired by Hamas into Tel Aviv. We saw the Iron Dome intercepting it right over our heads. A reminder that just because major cities in Israel have not been flattened by the terrorist group, just because uh, the death toll in Israel is not in the thousands, it's not for a lack of trying by Hamas. Hamas has fired thousands of missiles aimed at Israeli population centers. It's only because of the Iron Dome missile defense system uh, that more Israeli civilians have not been killed. Um, tonight, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting the idea of a ceasefire in Gaza, saying that that would mean Israel would essentially be surrendering to Hamas terrorists. And moments ago, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby seemed to agree with that determination. We, we do not believe that a, a ceasefire um, is the right answer right now. Uh, we believe that a ceasefire right now benefits Hamas. Let's bring in Richard Haas. He's a foreign policy expert, and most recently he was the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Richard, good to see you as always. So Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, this evening invoked Pearl Harbor and 9-11 when he said there would be no ceasefire today. He said they're no more willing to do so as the United States would, would be after 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. Um, but when President Biden visited Israel this month, he urged Netanyahu to, to proceed with caution and strategy and to remember the lessons learned um, to not react out of rage. Um, will history show that, that Netanyahu acted uh, in that way um, with, a, with, with strategy and, and, and not out of anger, do you think? Well, I think it's very much in the balance, Jake, but I've got to tell you, and I hope I'm wrong here, but I'm skeptical. It's not quite clear to me how Israel is going to be able to, quote unquote, eliminate or destroy Hamas militarily. I've long thought that Hamas is as much of an, a network, an idea, a movement, as it is a finite organization with a, with a headquarters that you can destroy. And even if this analysis is wrong, it's not clear to me to whom you would transfer authority, particularly an Israeli occupation is unlikely to be a legitimate midwife to anything else. So I understand the Israeli position, but going back to what uh, John Kirby said, Yes, the administration supports Israel's right of self-defense, feels a ceasefire is inappropriate now. But when does that change? Is it a week from now, two weeks from now, a month? What is the criteria uh, for which the United States would say enough? What is your definition of success? What can you reasonably expect to accomplish here using military force? So let me let me ask you this. Let's assume that one hates what Israel is doing in Gaza right now. Let's just, let's just posit that as, as a given. What is the proper response? Israel 
sees what happened on October 7th as the government next door, and Hamas is the government of Gaza, mm -hmm. the government next door sent in an army, slaughtered civilians, 1,400 people, most of them civilians, some in the army, but let's be frank, I mean, there's conscription here, so even the 18, 19, 20-year-olds that were in the army, they didn't have a choice. Um, but, but slaughtered them, took more than 200 hostages. What is the proper response? What would any country in the world do if a, the government next door was dedicated to eliminating the country and sent in armed individuals to slaughter civilians? What would, any, any, what would Sweden do? What would Switzerland do? What would Jamaica do? I think we need to separate two things. One is that the government, in this case Hamas, is dedicated to seeing the end of the Jewish state. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev once said the Soviet Union will try to bury us. What matters most is that Hamas cannot succeed, and that's on Israel. And Israel failed, obviously, on October 7th. So one thing Israel needs to do is rebuild its uh, defenses, rethink its intelligence, so Hamas, regardless of its intentions, can never again achieve anything in the same zip code that it achieved on October 7th. Secondly, they do have a right to self-defense. So I would say go after Hamas, but do so in a way that does not bring in so many people in, in Gaza. So think more discreetly. It might mean more targeted strikes, but fewer of them. It might mean uh, commando-like raids on the, uh, the ground. So just do it in a way that essentially you're mainly hitting uh, the terrorists rather than the communities they are trying to enmesh themselves in. Do you think any country in the world would do it that way? Well, again, after 9-11, we learned the hard way about what happens if you overreach. Urban warfare is, 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 is not an easy uh, undertaking. I, and look, I understand the emotions. I understand all the desire to eliminate uh, Hamas, to kill all 30,000 terrorists that are part of the organization. My view is that it's simply unlikely to succeed. But if one reduces dramatically Hamas's uh, footprint, and its capability, one rebuilds Israeli defenses and rethinks its intelligence capability, I think it creates a, a totally manageable s situation. Again, I know people want to solve this once and for all. That's the, that's the instinct. What I'm suggesting is I'm not sure that's on the menu of available options. Well, I think they also, the Israelis also want to like make sure that they can't do it again even like in a week or two, and they don't feel like they have the, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I'm like trying, just trying to have a conversation but Jake, about what but let me just do. make clear. But, but be, Hamas's ability, yeah. let me say this, Hamas's ability to do it again, to use your phrase, depends not simply on their own absolute capabilities, depends not simply on their intentions, but on Israeli vulnerabilities. Israel can reduce Hamas right. capabilities. It can't change their intentions. What it mainly can do is dramatically increase its defensive capabilities. So even if Hamas were to try something like this again, it would fail dismally, and everyone involved on the Hamas side would die. And trust me, if that happened once or twice, they would rethink their strategy. That is in Israel's control to bring about. Richard Haas, thank you so much. Appreciate it, sir. Coming up next, what one woman describes as pure cruelty, a disturbing report that the world really does need to see to understand the scope of the Hamas attacks. Stay with us.
We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Three weeks and change after the brutal terrorist attack by Hamas, doctors and forensic experts are working around the clock. They're still trying to identify bodies. They're trying to bring answers for so many families desperately waiting on news as to what happened to their loved ones. As CNN's Sarah Seidner reports, one of the challenges is how badly some bodies were mutilated beyond recognition. A warning, some images you're about to see in this report are quite disturbing. These are Hamas militants arriving at Kibbutz Beri on October 7th, terrorizing residents. The last conversation between a mother and son in Kibbutz Beri. Daughter Michael Pinion shared it with us, her last memory of her mother as Hamas descended on her parents' home. I know after a I don't know, half an hour, she was writing, help, help. And then it was quiet. The next time she saw her parents, they were in coffins. Some families have yet to say goodbye. Outside Tel Aviv at the rabbinical Shura military base, inside these containers there are hundreds of unidentified bodies, many mutilated and in fragments. This place is indeed pure, it's holy, it's paradise, but it's also hell. Forensic experts, dentists and rabbis are working day and night to identify the victims of October 7th. The smell is completely overwhelming. I mean, completely overwhelming, even with this on. And it's refrigerated, but some of the bodies are just in pieces. It doesn't take much to be really badly affected by just looking at the the horror of that. Even those whose job this is are struggling. You see the lack of humanity and you see pure cruelty. During our um, identification process, um, we heard the screams and we heard the cries of the family that came and said their last goodbye. The brutality of the Hamas attack is forcing a change to burial rites here, usually very strict in Judaism. 
According to Jewish law, we bury the dead when they are in the ground. In this case, we bury them in their coffins because we want to respect them, but also because there isn't much left of them. Michael Leveni-Lod and her colleagues say this is the worst thing they have ever seen because of the evidence of torture. I started crying and the other people uh, hugged and uh, we have these break, breaking moments because this is, these are atrocious crimes. These are crimes against humanity. This is not regular murder or terror attack or bus explosion. We've seen all of this in Israel, but never anything like this. What she does know for sure is this is more death and torture than she has ever seen in her career. Cemeteries like this one are popping up across the country. This is just a temporary grave site that is being dug for the victims of the October 7th Hamas attack. You look at these graves, you can see the remnants of some of the things they loved in life. But there are some gruesome details. One of these graves, for example, has two bodies from a family buried together. Families are insistent that these temporary resting places are just that, temporary. We don't want them to be buried in another place. They are people of Berry. This is their home. This is their community. They cannot be buried anywhere else. That's because, so far, Kibbutz Berry is still under the control of the Israeli army. It's too dangerous to go back. And Pinyon realizes her family is just one of potentially 1,400 having to make this awful decision. Three weeks in, she says they have no idea when they can go home again and when they can finally bury her parents, Amir and Mati, in their final resting place. And Amir and Mati had just retired. Uh, they were ready to start using their pensions to enjoy their lives, and their lives were taken because of the Hamas attack. Jake? No words. Great piece. Thanks so much. I met a man here who had escaped uh, the cruelty of the Nazis as a boy, only to face Hamas eight decades later. And I'm going to bring you his story next. People from Hamas. The subject of our next story has lived and suffered the horrors of history repeating itself. At the age of eight, his family fled the rampant anti-Semitism in Poland just before the Nazi invasion, and then on October 7th, 83 years later, his life was in danger again by the anti-Semites of Hamas this time, also looking to kill Jews. I bring you now his story and a warning that some of the content is disturbing. During the October 7th terrorist attack on his kibbutz, 92-year-old Dov Golobovich kept close to his phone. My phone, which told me where all these people were crying for help, where they were, and they didn't get to my suburb. His neighbors in Kibbutz Nirim, where at least nine people were killed or kidnapped, used a group messaging system to call in desperate warnings to each other. I started hearing people saying, people want Arabs wandering around all over the place in their homes, and what's going on? Send the army, send the army. Right. No army. And they were hysterical. And the people were very frightened, even though they were in a safe room. Because um, one of them, I was told, 
Uh, she couldn't close it. They were holding on to that handle to keep it from opening. Dove was alone in his home safe room in the oldest section of the kibbutz, protected by a gift from his son. My son, who is an engineer, and was, uh, he already thought, you can't lock those safe rooms from the inside. You can close them, but you can't lock them. They didn't think of that one. He made up a, 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 a wooden bar, just a wooden thing with a bit of iron on top of it, which you could put on top of the handle. You couldn't open it from outside. That's when I stuck on. I hadn't used it before. Dove remained locked in the small concrete room for 10 hours. How scared were you when you were inside the safe room? <laughs> I was worried. <laughs> scared. And look, I've seen so many things already. My parents left Poland because of pretty rabid anti-Semitism. When he was eight, his parents pulled their family out of Poland. They escaped just one week before the Nazi invasion that would eventually force his uncle and future father-in-law to Auschwitz. During the war, Dov and his family stayed safe in Australia, reading of Hitler's horrors as they spread across front pages. Eventually, Dove joined a Zionist youth movement where he met his future wife, Lily. And in 1955, they moved to Israel, where they built a family. We were sent to kibbutz near him. Because that was the, a left-wing kibbutz. That was one of the very in need of people. Dove and the kibbutz he helped create were marking the anniversary of their community this year on the eve of the October 7th attack. The kibbutz had a birthday party. They celebrate the establishment 77 years. On Friday night, on the morning of the Saturday morning, 6.30, alarm started. Uh, shelling, shelling, what they call uh, red alert or um, so, did you ever think, I escaped the Holocaust, but now I'm going to get killed by Hamas? Did that cross your mind? Eventually, because I don't believe any place is safe, really. Still, leaving his land is not an option, he says. Not again. This is where he built a life. This is the land where his children and grandchildren live. Are you going to go back? Yeah. You're going to go back to Nirim? Of course. Of course. When they took down the two towers, America sent everybody to safe homes. I mean, all right, it's not the two towers. <laughs> but uh, you go back to your home. In my opinion, my, my modest opinion, you don't let uh, terrorists uh, break you down. You know, there was a, a revolt, the ghetto, Warsaw Ghetto Revolt in 43. They wanted to show, they're, not, they're going to show something. One of them wrote a, a song, a poem, which was turned into the song of the Jewish partisans. And the first line said, never say you're going on the last road. We are here. We are not going to give in in any way. I'm going to die with my boots on, I hope. Uh, I hope. <laughs>
Dove's wife, Lily, passed away nine years ago. October 7th would have been their 70th wedding anniversary. And what a treat and honor it was to spend an afternoon with that gentleman. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Lead, live from Tel Aviv. We're going to have more on the war in Gaza in just a moment, but we're going to turn to another major story in the U.S. There are serious questions for law enforcement in Maine over what they knew about the mental health of the gunman who opened fire and took 18 innocent lives last week. CNN has learned that the U.S. Army asked local police for a welfare check on the shooter, after a worried soldier warned that he would, quote, snap and commit a mass shooting, local authorities went to the shooter's home but failed to contact him. That was September 16th. That was less than six weeks before he carried out the deadly mass shooting. CNN's Shimon Prokopes is in Maine. Shimon, tell us more about what you're learning. Yeah, so we've learned from a report that the local authorities in Maine, where the gunman lived, uh, went to his home. There's a report that was done on, on a welfare check. And what we've learned is that on multiple occasions, up to about three or so, they tried to make contact with the shooter. At one point, they went to the home on September 17th, and they believed he, he may have been inside the home. They called for backup because they were concerned, the police. Uh, but nothing was done. They never spoke to him. Uh, they never tried to retrieve his weapons. They never took him in for any kind of evaluation. So today, the Maine's, Maine's governor had a press availability. And we came here to ask her, what does she know? What is her reaction uh, to all of this? She says everything's under investigation and that she refused to just simply answer any questions about what contact the gunman may have had with police. Take a listen. I think that determining and understanding all the facts surrounding this event is crucial. All of the facts. The Maine State Police is, as I said, in undergoing a thorough investigation of every aspect of the case. Facts are important, and it's an important question that you ask. Uh, there are many other important questions that will be determined in the coming weeks and months. And, and Jake, we just simply couldn't even get a reaction to her, to this new uh, information. Uh, as she said that the investigation is going to uh, continue. But I can tell you, in just talking to law enforcement officials uh, who have seen this report, they are all extremely alarmed by what they've read and by the inaction of the officers here in Maine. Jake? Shimon Prokopas, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And this note, since last Wednesday's massacre in Maine, the deadliest mass shooting in the U.S. so far this year, there have been 13 other mass shootings across the United States, according to the Gun Violence Archive. 13 other mass shootings just since that one. Israel Defense Force tanks rolled into Gaza today as Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu insisted that his country would not agree to a ceasefire. What might this mean for the wider region? That's next. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over Tel Aviv. It's just about 11 p.m. here, and it's been... 23 days since the horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas caught this country and, frankly, much of the world by surprise. Live pictures tonight over Gaza, where we've heard some gunfire and explosions over the last hour. Also tonight, significant updates on multiple people who were kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. 
A female Israeli soldier who was kidnapped is now reunited with the family. Her family, the Israel Defense Forces say, Private Ori Megadish was rescued during ground operations and is doing well after a medical evaluation. Also today, Hamas released a short video of three other women who are believed to be hostages. CNN is not going to show the video at the family's request, but these are the three women seen here in family photos that the uh, Israeli Prime Minister's offices says are seen in the video. One of the women is heard pleading with the Israeli government to do more to secure their release. Also today, awful news, a German-Israeli woman kidnapped by Hamas uh, has been found dead. Uh, 23-year-old Shani Luke was at the Nova Music Festival when Hamas attacked and killed at least 260 others on the scene. Shani's uh, body was seen on video after the attack, seemingly unconscious in the back of a Hamas truck being driven into Gaza, paraded around by the terrorists of Hamas. We want to warn you, the video is graphic. Uh, we're going to show you some of it with her body blurred out. Shani's mother uh, gave CNN permission to, to air the video to show the world the brutality of Hamas that were, that were blurring out her naked body. A source familiar with the confirmation uh, of her death says that this is the way they did it. They found, Israelis found a fragment of a bone from the base of a skull. It's technically, it's called the Petrus, Petros bone. It was recently located and the bone was a DNA match for Shani's family. Uh, so experts taking that fact combined with the video we just showed and then of course the circumstances of her October 7th kidnapping left a team of five experts at the Ministry of Health to conclude that Shani was in fact dead. Today, any notion of a ceasefire has been dispelled, as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, quote, this is a time for war, unquote. More Israeli troops are on the ground in Gaza, according to the IDF, pushing at least two miles into the Gaza Strip. Israel is claiming it has killed dozens of Hamas fighters. As it expands ground operations in Gaza, new Israeli leaflets dropped over Gaza are warning people in the north and center of Gaza that they are not safe and the area is now, quote, battlefield. People living in, of course, that battlefield have very few options to seek safety. Thousands of Palestinians have already been killed as Israel has been bombarding Gaza for weeks. Whether they're targeting Hamas or not, the IDF is killing innocent civilians and exacerbating an already fraught humanitarian crisis with shortages of water and food and medical supplies, shortages of simple shelter. President Joe Biden has been pressing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the White House says, to, quote, immediately and significantly, unquote, scale up the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. Gaza has received only a small fraction of the aid trucks the people of Gaza need, 2.3 million residents of Gaza. The largest humanitarian relief operation inside Gaza is reeling. The United Nations says 63 members of its staff members have been killed since October 7th. 10 in just the past three days. CNN's Nick Robertson is just outside the Gaza border in the town of Stirot, Israel, which was hit hard on October 7th by Hamas terrorists. Nick, Israeli troops have now advanced more than two miles into Gaza, the IDF says. How has this new phase of war evolved over just the last few hours? 
Yeah, the IDF say that they've been calling in airstrikes when the ground troops discover a stronghold of Hamas and targeting that. And we've heard those airstrikes uh, throughout the day, planes circling and, and uh, dropping guided missiles on those targets. But over the past couple of hours, and I'm just hearing a jet again right now, over the past couple of hours, we've heard a continuous and strong barrage of artillery fire being fired into to Gaza tonight. And that seems to represent, feels like an uptick in the scale of munitions dropping in the, uh, in, in the Gaza Strip. And also we've seen missiles dropped or fired from helicopters almost sort of vertically above Gaza. That's the artillery I'm talking about, almost directly above Gaza. And these going straight down, these missiles going straight down uh, into Gaza. It's not possible for us to really tell what they are but it's something new on the battlefield that we haven't seen before. Perhaps smaller, more precision located uh, munitions that are tied in between the ground force and, and talking with the helicopter pilots on what to hit, Jake. And Nick, uh, Hamas uh, released a short video today showing three female hostages. We're not going to show the video. The family requests that we don't. The families request that we don't. And we don't know under what conditions the video was recorded. I mean, obviously under duress, um, but it does seem to provide some insight into the tactics of this terrorist group. Yeah, assuming that Hamas did not let these women or the one woman of the three who spoke uh, speak entirely their mind. So we have to take that as an insight into what Hamas wants them to say. And the language did get very emotional towards the end, begging the prime minister to uh, to get their release, to have a ceasefire, to help win their release. But the points that they made, the, 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 the lady who spoke in the video made, was that Prime Minister Netanyahu and the government had let them down on overall security, that they hadn't been safe in their kibbutz near the border, that the army had been very slow to respond by Hamas's attack on October the 7th. And so it does seem as if Hamas is trying to sow seeds of political dissent within Israel as well. And, and in, the, in the video, the narrative essentially says the Prime Minister Minister had the opportunity to have a ceasefire to get the hostages released and he didn't take it. So again, this is Hamas's propaganda, if you will, to try to create the narrative that there was an opportunity for hostage release and it was an opportunity that was squandered by the Prime Minister. But as we heard earlier on today, Prime Minister Netanyahu is very clear there won't be a ceasefire. This is a Pearl Harbor moment, a 9-11 moment, and you don't back down and have a ceasefire in, in such circumstances, he said. Nick Robinson in Stirot, thank you so much. Elsewhere in the Middle East, U.S. forces are under attack, uh, 23 times to be exact, in the last two weeks. A senior Pentagon official is telling CNN that 14 of the attacks happened in Iraq, nine of them in Syria. CNN's Oren Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us. Uh, Oren, where exactly are these attacks happening, and how is the U.S. responding? Jake, we've seen over the course of the past three weeks a massive effort from the entire U.S. government to try to separate the conflict in Gaza from the rest of the Middle East, trying to point out, for instance, that U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria are there 
for the defeat of ISIS, and that has nothing to do with Hamas in Gaza. However, that appears to have fallen on deaf ears because of how connected in the ways in which the Middle East are, is connected. Take a look at this map here. 23 different attacks since October 17th against U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. And these are the different sites, according to that senior defense official. A number of these sites, such as the Al-Assad Air Base there right in the middle, have come under attack numerous times. Al-Assad has come under attack at least seven times, according to the Pentagon. And this is what you're seeing. What's also worth noting is that many of these attacks, about a half dozen or so, came after the U.S. carried out two strikes against uh, uh, facilities linked to Iran and Iranian-backed groups in eastern Syria late last week. That was an attempt to send a warning message to those groups, a deterrent message to Iran, but also intended to avoid a further escalation. Well, at least from where we're sitting now, with about a half a dozen more attacks on U.S. forces after the U.S. strikes. The question to the Pentagon is, do you respond and retaliate again, or do you try to avoid any sort of escalation against those and, and try to keep that separate, managing that with, with the military and diplomacy? That's the balance the Pentagon has to strike here as it tries to avoid the conflict in Gaza spreading to the rest of the region. Jake. All right, Orrin Lieberman, thank you so much. So let me share with you an absolute nightmare. Just an absolute nightmare. On October 7th, Avichai Brodich and his family woke up at their home in Kibbutz Kfar Aza. They were preparing to celebrate his daughter's 10th birthday. And then Hamas attacked. And Avichai, in the course of that attack, was separated from his family. And since then, he has not heard from his wife and from his three young children. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being separated from your wife and your three young children after terrorists attack your house? Avichai Brodich is here with me in Tel Aviv. I can't imagine it. I have a wife and I have two children. I cannot imagine the pain you're going through. You know, I really don't know what I'm feeling right now as well. It's a whole big bunch of a mix of feelings because, you know, at the beginning, first day I, I thought they were dead so it was horrible you know I just thought my whole life was over and you know I was thinking all sorts of thoughts and then the next day I found out that they were seen alive you know walking towards Gaza how did you and find that out like someone someone told you you someone in the kibbutz saw them walking um, with so Hamas people with them pushing you know. that's correct that's correct and uh, you know, that was the happiest day of my life. I, I, they were alive. They were alive. And uh, so, you know, at first I was, you know, just devastated. And then, you know, the next second, I was, you know, it was the best day of my life. First of all, uh, tell me who we're looking at here. Who, who is, what's your wife's name? My wife's name is Hagar. Hagar. And how old and is she? She's uh, 40 years old. 40 years wife. old. And tell me who your three, your three kids are. Uh, let's, put a, let's put a picture. So can, I, can we just get uh, a solid picture, guys? There you go. So that's Hagar uh, on the left. That's Hagar. Who's the, who's the, the, the girl on the, on the that, left? That's Ofri. That's my daughter. She's 10. She's, she's the one that just turned 10. That, that's correct. Okay, who's the little boy in there? The, this is Yuval. He's eight years old. Yuval, and who's the little one? And the other one is Uriah. He's four years old. He's four years old. Beautiful uh, kids. Beautiful family. Thank you. Oh, my God. Okay. We'll see if I can get through this interview. Okay, so you said that you think the Israeli government should prioritize hostages above all else. So are you upset that the ground campaign has started, that the incursion has started? Are you worried that, that, that that's bad, that that might mean that the hostages, that might, that might be bad news for the hostages? Well, you know, I'm worried all day, you know. I yeah. wake up worried and I go to sleep worried and I wake up in the middle of the night worried. So, 
you know, I don't want them to prioritize it. I want this to be the only mission. I think that's the only mission that should be. You right. Know, Israel, you know, when I, I was brought up on Holocaust stories. Right. And Israel was brought up on one thing, you know, never again. That was the thing that Israel, right. that I was brought up on. And Israel was, you know, th that, that's the only reason, reason. So do the swamp. Whatever swamp they want, do it. You know, just do everything. Just right. do everything just for this. You know, my family's there. It's been over three weeks. Just do everything for my family. They're over there. This only reminds me of one time in history of, you know, recent Jewish history. It should be over. Yeah. Now you went to Washington. I'm from Washington, D.C. You went to Washington, D.C. Exactly. and you met with lawmakers. What, what was your message to U.S. lawmakers? My message was, you know, that they're probably, you know, all of them or most of them are family people. And, you know, they, they felt my hurt. There you are meeting with, uh, that's a Senator Coons. Yes. Senator Coons of Delaware. Yeah, he's on yeah. the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That's correct. Yeah. Um, he was really this awesome guy, you know, he was really he's a, nice yeah, and understanding. Nice yeah. And, uh, you know, I think they should, well, I hope, you know, I plead for them to help me uh, with this mission of mine. You know, it's just a humane thing to do and help release the hostages that, that you know, just, and they were so nice and understanding. And I really think that they will do the most they can for me and for all the hostages. It really felt that way. Does it give you hope that four hostages have been released and one was rescued? Does that give you any hope? Because there are, I guess, about 229 hostages left. But the fact that, you know, that, that four of them, you know, two Americans, two Israeli women were, you know, alive and one Israeli soldier was rescued. I mean, that must give you some, some hope, some positive. Well, it does. It does. And, you know, the, the thing that gives me hope is that they're in good shape. You know, they yeah. they have been you know, treated well. So this gives me hope because I got my wife and, you know, my three kids over there. So all day I think about them, how they're being treated, are they safe, you know, uh, at least health-wise. And if they're being fed all right, then it, it looks like the, the hostages that have been released have been well kept after. So um, this does give me hope or at least it, it strength. And, uh, but you know, there's still so many over there. So it's just a drop in the ocean right now for me. Uh, so, you know, I'm still, keep on fighting this and I still want to meet people and you know tell them my story so everybody knows you know I really miss my wife I really miss my kids it's been over three weeks I'm I'm lost you know I'm just lost I got my friends with me and so they they're keeping me all right you know, I don't know how you're doing it man yeah me neither but you know I just have to keep on going that's all I have all I have is my family yeah you got to keep going because they're going to come back they're going to come correct. back and they need you when for when they're back I have a lot of faith I have really a lot of faith and uh, a lot of people pray for me and, uh, you know, it's... Well, look, you know what, look, so look at that camera right there. There are people around the world watching right now, praying for you right now. And, and there are also people out there who like, you know, there's a lot of pain in Gaza right now. That's correct. And you probably don't want that pain. I do not. What do you want the people watching right now? What, what do you want them to know? You know, I just want them to look at their families, to think about their families, and, you know, think about me and my family though is over there. I really want my kids to, you know, to be right here and, you know, I want Yuval to play soccer and Uriah to play in his Xbox and, you know, free to play her guitar and my wife to be with me, you know, I, I, I sleep alone at night, I, I want to hug my wife, you know, and be with her. So just want everyone to think about their families and, you know, they, everybody knows what's right. Just do everything they can to help me, you know, to help the hostages, to bring them back home. Bring them home. Bring them home. Just bring them I'll home. Be I'm so sorry. Thanks very much. I want you to come back, and I want you to come back with your wife and your two sons and your beautiful daughter 
and we'll celebrate. We'll celebrate when they're back. I really wish it will happen right, soon. Man. Thanks very much. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Lead, and you're looking live over Gaza, where we have seen explosions light up the night sky over the last few minutes. Tonight, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting any calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, saying that would mean Israel would be surrendering to terrorists, and the U.S. appears to be backing that interpretation. Uh, Amos Yadlin is a retired major, major general of the Israel Defense Forces and former head of Israel's defense intelligence agency. General, thank you so much for joining us. So last night, Netanyahu tweeted and then deleted a post uh, that blamed the IDF and the Shin Bet, the intelligence chief, for not warning him about the October 7th attack. Uh, he then uh, was criticized. He, he deleted the tweet and he apologized, which is not a common thing for Netanyahu to do. What was your first thought when you saw that Netanyahu had blamed the IDF and Shin Bet? We should uh, point out for our audience um, that Netanyahu has not really accepted any blame for what happened on October 7th, even though most of the major leaders uh, in his cabinet and in the IDF have accepted their share of the blame. See, no, no doubt that uh, the 7th of October was a catastrophic failure and basically three failures in a row. All the stars were aligned against Israel, which caused the disaster. It's intelligence failure, it's operational failure, and it's a political leadership failure. So the head of intelligence and the head of the military said that they take responsibility but they look forward to win this war. Uh, the Prime Minister haven't uh, accepted his responsibility and in a way started some kind of campaign uh, to put all the blame on the other two. Uh, this is unacceptable. I'm, I'm glad he apologized, he understood the mistake and the goal is now, Jake, to win the war, to destroy Hamas and to bring back uh, all the hostages from Gaza. The New York Times is reporting that Shin Bet um, saw unusual activity by Hamas in the early hours of October 7th, but did not think that that unusual activity warranted waking up Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, take us inside how you think that judgment could have been made that this activity wouldn't have been a big deal. I don't think that uh, these events were investigated and debriefed already. Our face is forward. Uh, we will, uh, at the end of the war, look and, at every, every mistake that was done. First, to see who to blame, but more than that, to learn and to debrief how it will never happen again. One of the other um, obvious mistakes was um, out in the open, which was Netanyahu was so focused on making sure that the Palestinians were divided, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza, that because he didn't want there to be a Palestinian state, 
that he supported Hamas getting money from, I think, Qatar, um, and obviously uh, was more focused on Iran and Hezbollah and, and took his eye off the ball in Hamas. And um, I wonder if you think that these political calculations were just honest mistakes or that, that they were political miscalculations rooted in something else. The, the policy against Hamas found to be a huge mistake. But the policy against Hamas, the paradigm was that Hamas is a responsible uh, regime in Gaza, that Senor cares for his two million uh, people, that he accountable for them. He wants their standard of, of living to go up. He wants to build Gaza. And this was a mistake. He was a terrorist. He stayed a terrorist. He doesn't care about the two million people. And he uh, planned this uh, pogrom in Israel instead of taking care of the people of Gaza. This mistake is not only of the prime minister. It went all over. Uh, the previous prime ministers, uh, the head of the Shin Bet, the head of the IDF. Uh, the, the mistake of uh, the Prime Minister was that to avoid a peace process with the Palestinian Authority, he not only uh, considered Hamas to be deterred, but as you said in your question, he supplies them with uh, Qatari money and with uh, all, F all materials that help them to produce a, a military force on the border of Israel which is against what uh, the Oslo Accord and Prime Minister Rabin uh, promised all the Israelis that there will be, if there will be a Palestinians, a Palestinian authority or state or entity, it will be demilitarized. And what Israel is going to do yeah. now, it's to demilitarize the Gaza Strip. The second mistake yeah. of Mr. Yeah. Netanyahu is the nine months the nine months that he pushed Israel into a domestic crisis. Everybody was busy with his judicial uh, reform instead of being ready to uh, the, he caused in a way a decrease in the deterrence of Israel, weakening the deterrence of Israel, which unfortunately led to this attack among other reasons. Retired IDF Major General Amos Yadlin, thank you so much. Really appreciate your insights, sir. And then there is the desperation in Gaza. Hardly any food, hardly any water. Any semblance of civil order has deteriorated into chaos. A man whose aunt is in Gaza volunteering joins us next. We're back live in Tel Aviv today. 26 aid trucks passed inspection and were able to make their way from Egypt into Gaza, in addition to the 45 trucks that made it through yesterday. That's not going to be enough, though. The aid is trickling in. Civilians, however, still can't get out. Some five to 600 Americans, as you know, are still stuck in Gaza. One of them is Ramona Okamora. She's from Seattle. She's a prosthetics expert. She's volunteering in Gaza with the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. Her nephew, Nick Pang, joins us now. 
Uh, Nick, when's the last time uh, you heard from your aunt and how was she doing when you talked to her? Yeah, so thank you very much for having me. So, I mean, we are very grateful uh, that she has been in UN compounds where given everything going on, she is relatively safe and does have access to electricity. So we did hear from her earlier today, just saying that, I mean, she's still alive, uh, she loves us, uh, and that uh, she looks forward to being back with us. Well, that's at least some good news. Your aunt has been recording some voice memos. I, I, I want to play one that she recorded uh, yesterday. I am in Rafa waiting for the border to open. After more than three weeks of thousands of explosions in Rafa, I can't believe the State Department's advice is to wait in Rafa near the border while all the bombs, missiles, and shells from the sea are hitting everywhere in Rafa. And yet they say they're carefully monitoring the situation here. What's with that? Yeah, seriously. What is it like to hear that message from your aunt? And how frustrated are you with the U.S. State Department? I mean, it just makes my heart pound to hear my aunt. It's so wonderful to, you know, not only see words that she's written on a screen, but to actually hear her voice. Um, but... And I am glad that she has, you know, the strength uh, to continue on. But we are very frustrated with the State Department. I mean, we have been speaking with legislators. We've heard from the State Department. But for weeks now, she's just been told to stay near the Rafa crossing uh, so that when it opens, uh, she can exit into Egypt. But as she said, there are constant missile strikes and fighting nearby. Uh, she and her uh, group of other NGO workers are running low on food and water. Uh, there is respiratory and gastrointestinal diseases going around. And so, I mean, we are very terrified and, and frustrated that, I mean, she is still there and healthy and safe for now. But we, I mean, we can't count on that forever. We can't count on that much longer. For people who are just tuning in, um, uh, Nick's aunt uh, is, a, is a prosthetics expert. And some of the photographs you're seeing are some of the work uh, that she's doing in Gaza to help uh, kids uh, and other individuals um, get prosthetic legs, prosthetic arms. Um, Nick, uh, it sounds as though you don't think the U.S. government is doing enough to help Americans uh, get out. And um, you're certainly not alone in your frustration. Um, I've talked to Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, on, uh, on my show, uh, and he says that the Israelis have been cooperative, the Egyptians are willing, willing uh, to open Rafa, and that the problem has been Hamas. Hamas is not willing to let Americans out of Gaza. Do you accept that explanation? I mean, it's hard to say. I am not there, and given how dangerous it is uh, for uh, my Aunt Ramona to be sitting at the Rafa crossing, I mean, I don't know if every single day uh, there are Hamas uh, agents uh, preventing people from leaving, uh, but on the two days that the U.S. State Department, uh, going on nearly three weeks ago, told Americans that the Rafa crossing would be opening, uh, she did spend the whole day there, uh, so on two separate occasions, going on two and a half weeks ago. And 
for on those two days at least, there were no Hamas fighters uh, or agents preventing people from leaving. Uh, and so I, I can't say. I don't know if it's. I can't say what is Hamas's role in these negotiations. And I realize that it's a very complex situation and negotiation. Uh, but I am not certain that it is, and the family, and she is not certain if it is entirely Hamas's fault that the Rafa crossing has not opened. You say uh, that she and the group of humanitarian aid workers uh, she's with have food and have water rations, uh, rations for at least the next few days. Um, but it's going to be difficult for them to re-up on supplies based on what we're hearing from other Americans. You must be very worried. Yeah, I mean, we're just terrified about that. I mean, again, she recognizes that she's, I mean, she loves children. That's why she's there. She's a pediatric prosthetics expert. And so she realizes that she's incredibly, incredibly privileged to have access to food and water, unlike many of the people right outside of the UN compound. But I mean, there's a number of things. There is not much aid coming into Gaza. There is no fuel coming into Gaza. And even though this uh, NGO group is able to pay for food at rates that most Palestinians are not able to pay, at some point, their trucks are going to run out of gasoline and they won't be able to go to stores. At some point, and they're getting to this point where they're not able to find bottled water anywhere. And, you know, they've been subsisting on canned foods uh, for the last few weeks. I mean, at some point, they will run out. And I mean, and that's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and so she yeah. is very grateful, yeah. but we're still yeah. terrified. Nick Pang, thank you so much. I'll be praying for uh, Auntie Ramona. Thank you so much for telling your story. Coming up thank next, the frightening much. moment when an anti-Semitic mob rushed the tarmac and rushed a plane that had just landed from Israel. Exactly what happened here and what it could mean for tensions around the world. Stay with us. And we're back in Tel Aviv live, where a moment ago Israel issued its highest level travel warning for Russia's Dagestan region. That's a section of Russia with a large Muslim population. And last night, an anti-Semitic mob stormed through the airport there after a flight from Israel landed. CNN's Fred Pleiken reports on the harrowing scene in and around the airport. The moment an angry mob charged onto the tarmac towards a plane from Tel Aviv looking for Israelis. Some of the passengers surrounded, forced to prove they aren't Jews. I'm Uzbek, but I don't know Uzbek language, this man assures. Do you want to fool us? Take his passport, a man answers. Rumors had swirled in the Muslim-majority Dagestan region of Russia that this jet was carrying refugees from Israel, setting off the rampage. There are no more passengers here, honestly, a ground staff member says, as the crowd surrounds the aircraft. Everyone immediately go back onto the plane. The crew of a different aircraft orders its passengers as the protesters charge those disembarking. Hundreds also broke into the terminal building, some carrying Palestinian flags, leading to a total shutdown of the airport. 
The melee continued outside as well. Rioters searching vehicles, also looking for Jews. I have a sick kid. Here, we only have sick kids. Let us go, the man in this bus says. And this woman screams, we were traveling to bring our kids to get medical treatment. Let us go. What do you want from us? Russian security forces used choppers to bring in reinforcements, firing into the air to try and push the protesters back. Authorities say more than 20 were injured and more than 60 detained, the crowd throwing rocks at riot police even after they were driven out of the airport. Russian President Vladimir Putin held a meeting with his security staff, but the Kremlin blames, quote, external interference for inciting the crowd. While it's not clear whether any Israelis were harmed, condemnation from Israel's president in an interview with German publication Bild. It was like a pogrom. Thank God it was prevented at the end by the authorities. But it looked like pogrom and it was live and everybody was worried about it. So, Jake, there's some pretty clear words there coming from the Israeli president. Obviously, some extremely troubling scenes that we saw there from Dagestan. The Israeli government as a whole also uh, condemned uh, what happened there uh, in Dagestan and also demanded that Russia do everything to keep both Israeli citizens but Jews in general in Russia as well safe. The United States State Department, of course, tonight doing exactly the same thing, Jake. Fred Blyken, thank you so much. It's happening in more places uh, than Dagestan recent actions of hate in the United States, notably on college campuses. Stay with us. We're back live from Tel Aviv. The conflict uh, here between Israel and Hamas in Gaza is creating tensions around the world, including on college campuses in the United States. Cornell University's police department just announced it is increasing patrols and providing extra security for Jewish students and organizations at Cornell after threatening graphic and hate-filled messages were aimed at Cornell's Jewish community over the weekend. According to the Cornell Daily Sun, the school student newspaper, online messages surfaced with threats of shooting, raping, and killing Jewish students um, from the left, purportedly, or at least from supporters of the Palestinian cause. The incident came after one Cornell history professor described himself as, quote, exhilarated after the October 7th attack on Israelis, most of them civilians, 1,400 of them. The professor later apologized for his choice of words. Joining us now is Frederick Lawrence. He is a distinguished lecturer at the Georgetown Law Center and is the former president of Brandeis University in Massachusetts. Um, thanks for joining us again, Frederick. Aside from having been a university president, you also have some experience when it comes to bias crimes. What do you make of these threats? Uh, and do you believe that American colleges and universities are well equipped to, to handle a conflict like this uh, spilling out onto the campuses? These threats are very real. They should be taken very seriously. The ones at Cornell you just talked about. There have been instances recently at Tulane, at Berkeley, at many other schools. Campus security is stretched to the uh, to the breaking point. This is not the sort of thing they're used to dealing with. So I think campuses right now 
are well advised to be working with local law enforcement. I know when I was at Brandeis, we worked very closely with the local Waltham police uh, in matters like this. I think the kind of thing that we used to deal with, being a school that had a particular Jewish identity, most schools in the country are now experiencing in some form or another. About 130 faculty members from Columbia University and Barnard College signed an open letter. They were expressing concerns about the way they felt some students were being targeted and labeled anti-Semitic after they signed a statement that shared pro-Palestinian views. And on the surface, that sounds reasonable, but the letter, when you read it, it described the October 7th terrorist attacks against Israelis they, that described it as a military response by an oppressed people. And I know that that really upset a lot of people. What are your thoughts on that? I think we have to distinguish, Jake, among three different kinds of speech. There's actual threatening behavior like the kind you were just talking about at Cornell. There's no place for that. That can be prohibited on campus. That can be prohibited by law in our communities. Then there's this second category that you're talking about now of words that are offensive, uh, perhaps one would even say hateful, but they're not threatening individual people. They're not even threatening a group of students on campus. I think those do not call for prohibition. What they do call for is for forceful response by the central administration to say, students can say that, faculty can say that, but that's not the values of this institution. I think that's the piece that many university presidents are finding challenging right now. It's not about repressing speech like that, but it is about answering it back. Then there's the third category, which is tough discussion of tough issues, and a wise president's not going to weigh in on every single discussion. You let those discussions play out. But that second category I talked about is where the real complicated choices have to be made, and I think presidents are finding that very challenging today. Well, if you were a college president and a professor or 130 professors were describing the terrorist attacks on Israeli civilians as a military response. And there were Jewish students that felt like, how can you justify that? That, that might not be a, a threat, but is, it is a justification of the slaughter of Jewish civilians. How do you handle that as a university president? I think you have to do two sets of things. One is that you have to make strong comments that say the university by its president has a view on this, and it's a different view, and that it does not see this as a military action, but saw it as a terrorist action, saw it as murder of innocent people. At the same time, you have to be involved in what universities actually do best and are at their, at their strongest point, which is education. And this is a time for looking to your faculty right. members who are knowledgeable in these areas to, to play roles in their classes, in campus-wide activities, in town hall meetings, I know this is hard, and I know it sounds like that's a pale response, but the whole idea of education, of higher education, is making nuanced distinctions, and we have to regain that. If we lose that on our campuses, we've lost something very precious. And also very important to, to, to not paint people who support Palestinian rights and support Palestinian statehood as supporting terrorism, completely different things. I think that's an incredibly important point that you just made. And it's very easy for people on multiple sides to oversimplify what's on the other side. Support for terrorism has to be called out and has to be labeled as it is. Thank Differences you. of opinion, that has Frederick. to be supported.
Frederick Lawrence, thank you so much for your insights. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. We're going to leave you tonight with what passes for good news in this corner of the world these days. Ten-month-old twins reuniting with the heroes who saved their lives. The twins' parents, Itai and Hadar Berdyshevsky, were murdered by Hamas on October 7th at Kibbutz Kfar Aza, about three miles from Gaza. But before they were killed, they hid their babies their baby twins in a bomb shelter. And rescuers with the Israeli volunteer group United Hatzalah, which we These profiled last week, found them that day. They were screaming and dehydrated. The boys are now safe with family members and the rescuers, for whom there has been so little light in all this darkness, well, they reunited with the twins a few days ago. I'll be back from Tel Aviv tomorrow here on The Lead. Our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer. He's right over there in the Situation Room, also live here from Tel Aviv.